Series 3, Architecture plus Infrastructure, engages in conversation with multidisciplinary speakers who have contributed to the growing field of literature on infrastructure in the Gulf. This series explores how investment in infrastructure for the extraction, production, transportation, and distribution of resources shapes Gulf Series relationships to regional and global networks. These conversations also investigate the capacity of infrastructure to be maintained, adapted, or reimagined within the Gulf and at a planetary scale. Good afternoon. I'm Mahnaz Fancy, the Communications and External Relations Manager at Sharjah Architecture Triennial. Today's podcast is the third episode in our Architecture plus Infrastructure series of SAT Talks. I'm pleased to welcome our guest today, Ali Ahmed, who joins us from Beirut. As a quick introduction, Ali is a research fellow studying energy policy at the Managing the Atom and International Security Program at Harvard University's Kennedy School. His research interests include energy security and resilience and the political economy of nuclear energy in newcomer markets, with a focus on the Middle East. Ali previously served as the director of the Energy Policy and Security Program at the American University of Beirut and was a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton University's Program on Science and Global Security. He also serves as a senior consultant at the World Bank advising the energy and extractive industries global practice. Ali holds a degree in physics from the Lebanese University and a PhD in engineering from Cambridge University. Hi, Ali. Thank you for making the time to speak with us today. Hi, Mahnaz. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be a guest on this series. So earlier this year, the Emirates Nuclear Energy Corporation announced the opening of the Baraka nuclear plant in Dafra in the Emirate of Abu Dhabi, signifying a shift away from the UAE's reliance on fossil fuels to meet its energy needs and those of its growing cities and population. In this conversation, we will examine what this shift to nuclear energy means at various scales, from the individual to the urban, and how energy policy at the national, regional, and global levels impacts the future of cities in the UAE and wider Gulf. To delve further into what this shift means for the UAE and the wider GCC region, and to try and examine it at various scales, from the level of the individual consumer to the urban, in order to understand what drives energy policy at the national, regional, and global levels. First, I think it's important to understand what energy means as a service. Perhaps the best way to do that is to imagine our life without it. You mentioned earlier that I'm talking to you today from Beirut, and Lebanon suffers prolonged and frequent power outages, so most Lebanese citizens can very much relate to the importance of electricity in our daily life. Electricity is pretty much the nervous system of our uh, modern societies. Given this important role of energy in our society, it is understandable why governments and policymakers around the world, including those in the GCC, give much attention to energy policy and infrastructure investments. After all, our access to energy is one of the major recognized drivers of economic growth. Now, in the context of the GCC, Not only um, we have countries that are producers of oil and gas, which is a main component of the global energy scene, but those countries, if we look at their profile 
um, are also large consumers of energy. So countries in the GCC have one of the highest consumptions per capita of energy. To give you an example, in recent years, the, the domestic consumption of oil in Saudi Arabia totaled a quarter of its oil production, which is mainly you know, used for power generation. So clearly, there is a need to respond to higher demand of energy in the GCC and in the region. And this demand uh, is, by the way, increasing due to economic and population growth. But at the same time, these countries have economic interest of maximizing the profit or the revenues they make on their oil and gas um, exports. And these exports remain the main source of income for, for these countries. Solving this problem takes you directly to what you mentioned earlier about this race to build an alternative energy infrastructure. And not only as an economic necessity, not only as a way to diversify energy, but this infrastructure is part of a wider narrative of building a modern state, a modern society. And in that context, I mean, the UAE has been a great example uh, with what it has done over the last uh, Could you decade. maybe explain to us how the UAE has managed to make this big leap on the energy front in such a short time? Indeed, I think big leap is the right description here. And what the UAE has managed to do over the last uh, few years uh, is truly remarkable. It's easier to announce uh, ambitious plans or goals and visions, but it's much harder to to implement them. And to the UAE credit, whether you agree or disagree with the country's overall energy policy, the leadership of the UAE has shown a real commitment to whatever choice they have gone for. Now, of course, having such level of progress would not have been possible without the existence of certain enabling factor, the centrality of decision-making. I mean, you have rulers that expect... Uh, rapid implementation of projects and the high commitment of those rulers to these projects uh, instill confidence in, in project developers and technology developers which are attracted to the UAE. And in the process, what this confidence offers is lower investment costs because usually what drives uh, investment costs in other countries is the lack of certainty and the lack of political backing in the UAE, you have a top-level political backing of energy ventures in, across the board of all energy projects that the country has done over the last uh, decade. Another factor that I think is often overlooked but appears to play a major role as well is the increasingly elastic social contract in the country and across the, the GCC in general, but it's particularly relevant to the case of the UAE. I think this elasticity in the social contract could in part explains higher public acceptance towards nuclear energy. Remember that a lot of countries have anti-nuclear sentiment and anti-nuclear movements, primarily because of the fear of repeating past nuclear disasters. And uh, the countries in the region that also aspire to have nuclear programs have some notable public disapproval of, of nuclear energy. Interestingly, we don't observe that in the case of the UAE. So I think that could be in part explained by this elasticity in the social contract. That's a really interesting and important point. Um, and I'm really excited to pull out threads from that as we proceed with our conversation. But right now, I want to go back to one of the things you said about how the energy needs in the Gulf 
being related to population growth and therefore to urban development. We understand that energy is a major driver of economic and urban growth, but how does GCC energy policy accommodate that or account for that? Given the high levels of domestic energy consumption, GCC governments realize that it's not enough to continue to build power generation capacity. Something has to be done on the consumer level, uh, primarily to incentivize lower levels of consumption, or at least to minimize the government subsidies that support these higher levels of consumptions. Now, as you can imagine, removing subsidies is a tricky thing. It remains something that causes public resistance. If you look at the numbers, the total cost of energy subsidies across the GCC per year is around $160 billion. So this is a staggering number and clearly unsustainable. This vast amount of funds can be reallocated to serve other public purposes such as education, healthcare, but also they can be used to build energy infrastructure that can serve everybody. And that's why I think some GCC states, including the UAE, seem to have capitalized on the recent decline of oil prices to communicate the unsustainability of the subsidy model to to their citizens. And we have seen, to a large uh, extent, uh, acceptance of these Can we push this a little bit further and ask what other connections there might be between GCC or UAE energy infrastructures and the communities that they serve? I think the way the UAE, or more specifically the Abu Dhabi government, um, has promoted the nuclear project to various stakeholders in the early day of the project development was something that shows that there's a relationship between the public and energy that goes beyond the service provision model, right? Since the beginning of the development of the Baraka project, the leadership of other energy establishment within the country such as ADNOC, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, and Master City, were brought in and included in the conversation about nuclear. Both the head of ADNOC and the head of Master City currently serve on the board of the nuclear regulator. And that was a very symbolic and important step to actually smoothen the inclusion of a new energy source that can potentially be faced by some resistance from the public and from other energy establishment. So this preemptive approach was very effective in ensuring this smooth transition. Now, focusing more on the public interaction with this energy source, in the early days of the Baraka development project, the Abu Dhabi government started building training and academic capacities, such as creating a, a nuclear engineering department in Khalifa University and bringing top academic experts to teach in that university. Many students have been sent abroad to obtain degrees and training in the nuclear field. So you can imagine that those students and their families also now have a major stake in the nuclear project. And now they can, they can act as ambassadors for this energy source in their community. So if somebody has any questions on nuclear safety, those people would bring in you know, their knowledge of what nuclear safety is and how this reactor is safe to operate in Abu Dhabi. This is really important, and this is something we don't see in other countries in the region that plan nuclear power projects. 
It, this could also partly justify why there is some sort of public acceptance of nuclear energy in the UAE. I am cautious to advise that we rely too much on government-led communications and citizen engagements. Citizens have the responsibility to do their own homework and question not only the rationale to expand energy infrastructure, but also the cost, environmental impact, and safety and security risks associated with all these projects. And uh, frankly, I cannot think of a more important reason to debate all of these aspects than building a nuclear power plant in So in let's jump in. I want to start by giving our listeners a bit of context. Uh, the UAE and other regional countries are investing in various uh, alternative energy technologies, including nuclear power. Can you explain how the race to develop alternative energy sources in the GCC is related to region-specific concerns? I think you're asking a very important question. After all, economics is only one part of the decision-making process on an infrastructure project or an energy project. Clearly, other factors are taken into consideration. Usually, these costs are broken down into two buckets. You have fixed capital and investment costs on one side, and you have variable operational costs on, on the other side. Nuclear, wind, and solar, these three alternative energy sources, their cost is dominated by capital cost. They have very low operational costs. Conventional energy sources, such as oil or gas-fired power plants, are the opposite. They have very high operational costs, which is usually the cost of fuel, but very low capital cost. Now, between alternative energy sources, nuclear is by far the most capital intensive. Just to give you an example, the capacity cost of the Barca project would be around 5 billion US dollars per, per gigawatt. And if you take in comparison, the last solar project in the UAE, it was 800 million US dollars. So what should be emphasized here is that solar costs continue to witness dramatic reduction and there is some level of technological advancement and efficiency advancement that makes it possible for these costs to be reduced even further. However, nuclear energy and solar or wind are different sources of energy. Wind and solar are intermittent sources, so they only generate power for a fraction of the day. When the sun is not shining at night or when the wind is not blowing, these sources do not operate. Nuclear power is a different kind of energy source we call baseload. Baseload it generates power around the clock. So in a way, there is a value to nuclear which generates power at any time that you need it. And this quality, we call it dispatchability. So nuclear energy is dispatchable whenever there is a demand for it. And this dispatchability does not currently fully present in, in solar and wind, pending the development of energy storage. Once that happens, then it would be a game changer because storage would make solar and wind dispatchable To make this uh, more understandable for the layperson like me, it would be useful if you could help us understand the difference between these in terms of cost and output of energy. What is the difference between major infrastructure versus a kind of uh, decentralized energy mix. What does it mean to have an energy mix, and why is that a good thing? 
Uh, absolutely. I think first it's important to distinguish between power and energy. So a power plant can have a certain capacity. For example, a, a typical nuclear power plant can have the capacity of a thousand megawatt or one gigawatt. And you can also have the same capacity of a solar power plant. Now, both have the same capacity, but both uh, do not have the same amount of energy because this capacity, the 1,000 megawatt, in the case of nuclear, is produced around the clock. So uh, at any moment, if you tap into this nuclear power reactor to take electricity out of it, it gives you fixed 1,000 megawatt. On the other hand, when it, when it comes to solar or wind or other intermittent renewable energy uh, you know, power plants, Sometimes when there is no wind, it, it gives you zero, and on other times it gives you 30% of 1,000. So because of this variability, the total amount of energy produced by each energy source would be different from the other. I was saying earlier that the cost of capacity for nuclear is much higher than, than solar or wind, but even when you take into account this variability, nuclear is still very, very expensive compared to solar. The value for nuclear right now in the context of the GCC economies is that at least they can provide this baseload generation and replace gas or oil thermal power plants. But again, when energy storage becomes economically competitive, then the combination of energy storage with wind and solar together would actually um, eliminate any value for nuclear so, energy. So, in a way, what you're telling us is that not all alternative energy sources are equal, right? Also, is nuclear energy alternative energy or renewable energy? Because I'm finding the terms being used kind of loosely at times. Yes, I agree. I think these two terms are confusing and people usually uh, use them interchangeably. So, Nuclear, wind, and solar are, are alternative energy sources in the sense they provide alternative to the conventional energy sources, uh, such as coal, um, oil, and gas. Um, renewable means that the fuel required for these energy sources is infinite, and which is the case of solar and wind. But when it comes to nuclear, uranium is not infinite. The term I prefer to use when I talk about these three sources together, is alternative energy because nuclear cannot be classified as a renewable energy source. Uh, I would like to go back to the question about if all energy sources are equal because I think it's important to understand how do we compare energy sources to each other. The main thing that is usually compared is cost, and that's expected. However, there are other factors that should be also taken into consideration. I would like to highlight that historically, energy generation has been kept away from consumers' view. So power generation usually uh, takes place behind closed facilities that largely resemble industrial structures. And the only visible side is this iconic cooling tower and all the emissions that come out of it. In parallel to this, there's a narrative that all what consumers care about is service delivery which to a certain extent is true in our region. We as consumers, we don't usually ask or think about what source of electricity that you know, comes through to our house and powers our TV or microwave. However, I think this discourse of separating generation and consumption and ultimately consumers is being challenged, at least in two ways. First, 
policymakers are increasingly asked to justify what energy mix they wish to have. And in doing so, they often talk about other externalities beyond electricity provision, such as environmental aspects, job creation, building a technology base, and so on. Second, I think now citizens are taking a more proactive stance. When people consciously design energy-efficient buildings or when they install uh, rooftop solar panels, they become active players in the energy space. They are no longer only consumers. Taking these two aspects together, one can arrive um, to the conclusion that not all energy sources are equal and certainly not all alternative energy sources are equal. The value of each energy source is seen differently by different stakeholders. So while a large centralized baseload nuclear power reactor like Baraka, which uh, will produce 5.6 gigawatt of power, enough to uh, power a quarter of the UAE's energy needs, carries huge, huge energy diversification value for some it entails huge costs and security risks for others. Personally, I, I, I believe renewable energy sources should be the future of our cities. Renewables have been cost competitive at least since 2014. Compared to nuclear, renewable are less environmentally problematic. And also renewable can be deployed at any scale. You can have a utility scale renewable solar a project that you know generates gigawatts of electricity, but also you can have a smaller uh, solar panel on your rooftop. So you have this really scalable effect with renewables that you don't have. With when the, the Baraka project was announced, the articles and press statements pointed to the environmental benefits of this shift to energy. Can you detail a bit further what this means here in specific? Uh, this shift in nuclear energy as positive for the environment and how this compares with global trends towards choosing clean energy over fossil fuels? I don't think the UAE decision in 2008 to invest in nuclear energy was primarily based on environmental factors. That's not to say that environmental issues were not one of the supportive arguments, but I don't think it was the main argument. Clearly, at that time, the UAE was looking more into energy security, uh, economic reasons, because although solar and wind are more cost competitive right now, this was not the case back in 2008. In 2008, if I'm not mistaken, oil prices were at a very high level, so there was a huge opportunity cost for the UAE to burn oil domestically. There was some economic merit to having uh, nuclear energy. Uh, Clearly, since then, the economic landscape of energy has completely transformed. If you compare nuclear with solar and wind, All of these don't emit a lot of uh, carbon dioxide. Nuclear has other problems, which you don't have in in solar panels or or, or wind turbines. So uh, while nuclear could be a solution in reducing carbon emissions, it creates a problem with the issue of nuclear waste. And until now, we don't have a solid scientific answer to how to deal with with the issue. This nuclear waste will sit there for thousands of years. So at least in my view, that would make nuclear energy less environmentally um, friendly. 
Having said that, I think there are also other important factors of comparison, construction time required to build these projects. Usually, a solar or wind power project takes one or two years to to fully complete, while on average, it takes eight to 10 years for a nuclear reactor to be built. So the commissioning of the Baraka project started in 2012. And it was projected to take only five years, but it was delayed for three years. And by the way, this is not only exclusive to the Baraka, almost all nuclear nuclear reactors projects around the world suffer from time delays and cost overruns. So why I am mentioning this in the context of an environmental conversation? I mean, if you want to really solve climate change, usually you would go for solutions that can be easily deployed in a timely manner. So the question now, if we want to have this massive expansion of alternative energy that does not emit carbon dioxide, which one has the highest chance of being deployed fast and also deployed in all contexts? While nuclear energy can be deployed in you know, developed industrial countries with minimal problems, it cannot be deployed in more complicated situations such as fragile countries or countries that have either conflicts or bordering conflicts. There are so many obstacles that face the expansion of nuclear power as an answer to climate change. While these issues or these concerns do not exist when it comes to solar or wind. As somebody who grew up seeing the Chernobyl accident and then more recently the Fukushima a nuclear plant accident, these potential threats of mishap have been instilled as a fear. Though I am presuming that over the years, technological advances and increasing precautionary measures have been implemented so that events are not repeated in the future. As a resident of the UAE, I'm also conscious that this is a small country, and therefore any nuclear plants are not going to be very far away from our cities. Abu Dhabi itself is so close to Dafra, where the Baraka plant is. What are the thoughts around this question of safety? I think this is a very important question. So earlier I mentioned the citizen engagement efforts that the government has conducted to obtain public buy-in of the nuclear project. And in these efforts, the safety of nuclear reactor was discussed and Clearly, uh, there was a case that was made that these reactors are safe. Personally, I I think uh, the issue with nuclear safety is not about if an accident will happen. The issue is if it could happen. So it's a matter of possibility. The question is, can we completely eliminate the possibility of an accident? And the answer to that is no, even by the position of nuclear engineers who calculate probabilities of these accidents, and these probabilities are never zero. They are very small, but they are never zero. And I think the problem with a nuclear accident is that although the probability of an accident is very low, the impact is huge. I think what Fukushima has taught us is to really think the unthinkable when it comes to assessing the risks of nuclear power and their impacts. Most people think that nuclear accidents are rare because if you ask somebody you know, on the street to name nuclear accidents, they might say Chernobyl, Fukushima, and maybe Three Mile Island in the U.S., but that's it. While the fact that actually we have way more nuclear accidents than that, but the reason that 
the public can only name these three is because those are the catastrophic um, events that have happened. So the other accidents were either less problematic or maybe have not been reported even. This connects well to the issue of the UAE and the GCC that you have mentioned. GCC, nuclear accidents have the potential to be even more catastrophic than the accidents I mentioned earlier. Because you have cities with high concentration of population, but these cities have little or no option to evacuate people if that was needed. Another aspect, which is also very important, is uh, the linkages between energy and water security. If any nuclear accident takes place, there's a possibility that the water of the Gulf might be contaminated. And GCC countries rely heavily on desalinated water. Some countries, the reliance touches 80 or 90 percent. So any water contamination poses a real threat to the water security in these countries. Because of these reasons, nuclear safety should be a top priority in terms of policy making and in the region. So far, I, I am confident that the UAE government um, is taking the best measures to ensure Baraka is you. safe. Uh, you're really helping us put together these various strands of information that we as laymen in the field uh, collect in bits and pieces and don't always understand how to put together. Um, in your 2019 article about South Korea's nuclear energy exports to the UAE, you mentioned something really interesting, uh, which is that energy transactions between the Gulf and Asian economies, such as China, Japan, and South Korea, many of these represent nations with the highest demand for oil and natural gas. Can you elaborate a little bit more about how the move to nuclear energy is related to this global energy market and the UAE's role in it? Sure. I can think of perhaps two dynamics that we can highlight. First is the country-to-country dynamic that, that you mentioned, but also perhaps we can talk about the global level of, of energy markets. So on the country level, there is no doubt that energy transactions between states, be it directly through exportation or importation of oil and gas, or indirectly through the exports or the imports of expertise or infrastructure development, such as the case of Baraka, uh, which has a strong South Korean involvement, is a form of diplomacy. I mean, the choice of the South Korean nuclear vendor to build Baraka is perhaps not random when we realize that South Korea is, is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, trade partners with the UAE. So you are absolutely right to highlight this transactional form between countries. Now, on, on the global level, nuclear share of electricity remains, if I'm not mistaken, around 10% of the global energy generation. So it's not really a large number. Clearly, global energy generation is still dominated by fossil fuel, coal, natural gas, and oil, and, and of course, renewables as well. Contrary to nuclear, renewables are making big steps and being endorsed by governments and communities alike. I don't think that the expansion of nuclear on the global level would be as fast as some industry proponents are are expecting. For the reasons I I referred to earlier, the challenges related to financing and economics. So thinking about these various factors that go into energy policy, 
Where do we go from here in the GCC and in the UAE? Earlier, we discussed the relationship between energy sources and climate change. But one thing important to note is that this relationship is bidirectional. So the choice of energy sources clearly does have an impact on climate change, but also climate change in return does have an impact on energy sources. For example, and this is one of the projects I'm working on right now, is uh, how uh, climate-induced events such as heat waves, um, floods, could actually alter or affect the operations of nuclear reactors. For example, if temperature rises beyond a certain level, then nuclear reactors would have to be shut down because the cooling water would not be cool enough to take out the heat from the reactor. So you can see there is, there is a number of challenges that are still there that policymakers and academics have to try to work together to find solutions. The UAE will not be or is not the only country in the Gulf that either operating a nuclear reactor uh, you have Iran, which is currently operating the Bushehr reactor. You have Saudi Arabia planning to build nuclear reactors. So I think what would be really important is to strengthen the technical cooperation and strengthening the emergency preparedness between these three countries or all the countries. Because if you think about it, if a nuclear accident takes place its impact will be cross-border. All the countries in the region would be impacted, linking to what we said earlier about water, because everybody on the Gulf takes water from the Gulf. The impact will not be limited to one country. It will affect all countries. So there is a need to better understand how certain externalities, such as climate change, impact this source of energy. Thank you for listening. To join for future set talks, visit our website and follow our social media.